I will always look back and look back so fondly on season eight. It was the season that was never really supposed to happen. After the Luke Russert interview in June, I was fully prepared to hang the show up, at least for a little while. My role at Marie Claire had elevated. I was quite honestly going through hell personally, and I had to make a cut somewhere. Even though I'd rather be reading is 1000% my passion project. It is the only project I have that I have 100% creative control over. I only had so many hours in the day and truth be told, back in June, I was just trying to survive. But then I had that unexpected interview with Mitch Album in August and I remembered how much pure joy it brings me to have these conversations. So I said, I'm going to do season eight my way, throwback picks, current reads, fiction if I want. And this season, quite honestly, was disorganized, here, there, and everywhere, a bit all over the place, and I absolutely freaking loved it. I am thankful to each and every one of you for being on the journey with me. And season nine, unbelievably, is already fully planned out. That is how much spillover content we have. There is so much to look forward to, and I love being able to do things my own way. Today is the season eight finale, and I have saved a very special conversation for you. If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you'll know that Alzheimer's disease and finding a cure for it is a cause I am extraordinarily passionate about. God did not give me a brain for science, but he did give me the ability to write about a cure and talk about a cure. And that is exactly what we are doing today. On the show today, I have Edward Grinnan, editor-in-chief of Guidepost Magazine, a faith-based magazine that was one of my very first entry points into magazines, the industry in which I now work. As you'll hear me say on the show, my grandparents had so many copies of this beautiful magazine, I cannot count how many issues I've read. And this episode is about them, as you know that Alzheimer's is a disease that profoundly affected my grandparents. I spoke about Alzheimer's in a previous episode of the show, season five, episode 20, to be exact, the season finale for that season as well. My guest, Edward Grinnan's book, A Journey of Faith, A Mother's Alzheimer's, A Son's Love, and His Search for Answers, deals with his mother's battle with Alzheimer's disease. Edward writes that in the absence of a cure, Alzheimer's will have a $355 billion economic impact by 2050. It is a devastating disease in every way and for everyone involved. In the book, Edward reveals his deeply personal and hopeful journey of faith through his mother's Alzheimer's struggle and his own fear of one day getting the disease himself. And in addition to being a poignant memoir, the book is also a truly useful practical guide for those who are a caretaker or a loved one of someone with this terrible disease. And it's all wrapped up in his faith in God, which is so inspiring. Edward is the editor-in-chief and vice president of Guidepost Publications and is a graduate of the University of Michigan and then the Yale School of Drama, where he received his MFA. This is Edward's third book, and you'll soon see why I chose this conversation as our season eight finale. Take a listen. Edward, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk to you, Rachel. I was telling you offline before we started recording just how wild life is. I grew up reading guideposts in my grandparents' home. 
think that we can confidently say that was the first magazine I ever read. You are the editor-in-chief of Guideposts, of course, and both of those grandparents actually ended up suffering and passing away from Alzheimer's and dementia complications. So the conversation is extra special to me for for those reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, As I told you a moment ago, I lost three of my four grandparents to complications from Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, and again, it's just the full circle that is life that I grew up reading guideposts at my grandparents' house. They were subscribers. So anyway, before we get into it, can you tell my listeners about guideposts in case they don't know? You are the editor-in-chief there. So what is guideposts? Well, guideposts um, obviously has been uh, around for a while. Um, it really goes back to 1945. It's a magazine where everyday people, people from all walks of life, uh, can come and tell their own personal stories of inspiration, of triumph, of um, of faith and action in their daily lives. Um, and it could be major life issues, and it can be just small little uh, challenges that they faced. Um, and it's uh, in its time, it's it's reached millions and millions and millions, tens of millions of people. Um, and it's, it's it's a beloved magazine. Uh, generations, as as you know, uh, they pass it down. So uh, Guidepost becomes part of their family. You know, you have two or three generations reading it and sharing the stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and people, you know, have always said that it's a source of, you know, comfort and inspiration and even sort of wholesome entertainment because people people have such interesting lives and they have such interesting problems and challenges and triumphs and. You know, and to come to a magazine like Guideposts that's been around for so long and telling their story is is really, really powerful. It it creates Mm -hmm. a great sense of community. It really was the very first user-generated content long before, you know, Al Gore discovered the Internet. (laughs) So, um, you know, it was founded by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, who uh, went on a few years later to write the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, And he based a lot of that book on the stories that he heard and the people that he met in the pages of Guidepost magazine. Mm. Um, one of those publications, you never thought it would really grow to what it grew into, but it's grown into one of the largest magazines in the country. And for whatever reason, so Guidepost is not your standard magazine size, or at least it wasn't when I was a kid reading it. It's a little bit smaller than than that. And for what for whatever reason, I mean, I can understand because it's so good. My grandparents who were like of the great depression and had no problem throwing anything away, never threw a guidepost magazine away. I'm talking hundreds of guideposts in their house. And it's just, it just, I'm just having such a a moment right now of being a little girl in their house. And I just, I very much feel them here, here with us. So let's talk about your book. So your, I do, I do want to tell you one little, just one quick anecdote. Um, uh, are you familiar with the artist Prince, who was also known as the artist formerly named Prince? Am I familiar with Prince? Prince? Yes, I know. I'm familiar with Prince Legendary. Okay, so I'm I'm also a big fan. But I had no idea that Prince was a, a, a lifelong Guidepost subscriber. I didn't and know that. And when he died, when he died, his estate happened to reach out to us and to cancel his subscription. And I thought, yeah. oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. He was reading our magazine. So the other day I actually did um, come in contact with someone who had worked with the estate. She was a grief counselor, actually. And she wanted me to know that when she got to Prince's house, um, he had hundreds of guideposts stacked up in uh, in his office space. Right. And I thought, that's amazing because he saved every issue and it was Prince. So you know, 
who's going to be listening to you? Even now, as we talk, we never know who's going to be hearing a message from us. That's the best anecdote I've heard all week. And I am telling you, there's something about the magazine. You just don't feel right throwing it away. It's so inspirational. And that's, mm-hmm. that is a great story. And I'm, I'm glad that you shared that. That's, that's amazing. So, and, and unexpected, but you know what, you just never really can tell. That's awesome. Um, Prince, yeah. and my gra- Prince and my grandparents have something in common. I did not think that that was possible, but it's true. It's so, <laughs> so let's talk about your book. So your book mostly centers around your mother's battle with Alzheimer's. You have a very busy right. life. Why choose to write a book about this? Why did telling this story to the masses matter to you? Well, um, I would say that, you know, lots of writers sometimes claim that they write for themselves. They write for themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I reject that. I think you can't write unless you're writing consciously or at least subconsciously for an audience. Mm -hmm. So i I, you know, I wanted to reach an audience that I knew that this issue would be meaningful to. Um, you're a great example of having had Alzheimer's in your family. And it is a, it is a, a it, you know, what's interesting, it's the medical um, condition that people over 50 um, fear most. Um, cancer, heart disease, even COVID kills more than Alzheimer's on an annual basis, mm-hmm. but nothing uh, terrorizes us more than the thought of, of getting a disease that steals our memories. Mm-hmm. And if you go all the way back to 21-year-olds, it's their third biggest medical fear, even when they're decades away from their, when they're likely to, to suffer from it. So it it has a resonance in the country. We know, you know that millions and millions of family, nearly 7 million people right now are di- diagnosed with dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, but and and you can think of each person, and you know this from the experiences you had in your family with your grandparents, that the care, the 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 constellation of care that has to oh yeah come about take care of someone. So you're talking about for every patient, you know, even at the non-professional level, you're talking about two, three, four, five, six people who yep. are somehow responsible, or at least involved in caring for that one person. So it is a it is a it is a condition that, that affects so many people, either directly or indirectly, and worries so many people about getting. And you can imagine, as you see, as you did, see your grandparents go through this, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't help but think that, that it might affect you someday. So that's the second reason for writing the book, which is, in fact, I was writing for myself, even if there was the audience was, was front and center. I was trying to work through my own you know, my own experiences having gone through this with my mother, but also I, I was, you know, as as you have mentioned when we talked earlier, when you see it as prevalent in your family um, and I, and it, it is, you know, my mother and, and both her sisters and one of her brothers and her father mm. all had dementia and all yeah. died in memory care. Um, I I can't help but think of things. I can't help but think that that's a specter in my own life. Yeah. And as I get older and see my memory, you know, you, you know, you and inevitably, inevitably, you don't sound like you're at that point in your life, Rachel, but you know, there's a point where you, you know, your, you, your mind does slow down after about the age of 40 and you began to have some memory lapse, which are perfect, perfectly natural. But if you, you come from a family where the, the dementia is prevalent, you begin to think that you're, you're suffering 
you know, your own symptoms of, mm -hmm. of Alzheimer's or dementia. And we know now, uh, the neuro neurology knows that the, the actual pathology underlying Alzheimer's begins 20 years before a clinical di diagnosis can be wow. made in many cases. Wow. So, I mean, so even, even before you know you have it, uh, you know, it, it, you may be suffering symptoms that gradually worsen. It's like, you know, the Alzheimer's that we think of, someone who is very confused and is losing all of their memories. That's really the tip of the iceberg because mm -hmm. it's been a process that has, has been growing inside the neurons um, for, for many, for, for many decades. And, and, you know, and I, you know, I see myself and this, this is of course in the book, um, you know, I see myself someone making some of those mistakes, the same blunders that my mother made uh, when she was in the early stages of dementia. And, and we were still weren't even sure the family members weren't even sure that's what, but we knew because of the family history, we, we all kind of were in a certain amount of denial about it. But then, you know, later in life, I, I look at some mistakes I make and they're similar to what my mother, like, for example, um, I, you know, when my mother was still living in her house and living on her own, uh, I remember my wife, Julie, and I went back, um, my late wife, uh, went back to, to Michigan from New York City, where we lived, uh, to visit with my mother. And uh, what, the first morning we were there, when we got up, my mother was making coffee and completely forgot to put the the crap, the coffee mm. crap, the drip. So when we came downstairs, when Julie, she saw this, there was coffee all over the counter and dripping onto the floor. And, you know, she ran and, and got some paper towels and, and tried to clean while I was asking my mom, where's the crap? You've got to put the crap under the coffee. And it was weird because she really didn't know where the crap was. It mm -hmm. like, had completely, and she seemed almost indifferent to this mistake that was sort of causing this minor disaster. You know, eventually I found the craft in the back of some cabinet because she, she drank tea. She didn't drink coffee. So now I finally got it and we got it set and, you know, and we, all pretended like nothing bad had happened, right? Like mm -hmm. it was just a, a normal morning mishap. You know, something like 20 years later, I did the same thing. I did the same thing one mm -hmm. morning. Um, I, I had a, I was a coffee maker and I forgot to put my cup under the coffee maker and, and suddenly Julie screamed out, you got, <laughs> where's your coffee cup? It's, mm -hmm. it, the coffee's going all over the place. Okay, so it's some minor, it's a minor domestic, you know, event. It should be meaningful, meaningless, more or less. But in me, it just haunted me because I remembered right. that, you know, I remembered that moment with my mother and how that really was an early indicator of the fact that she was beginning to lose cognitive power. And I and immediately I thought, well, you know, it's happening to me. You know, it's happening to me. Yeah, when that could just be, you know, I mean, we forget things but like that's just human being a human but when alzheimer's runs in your family something like that can be extremely terrifying and as you just said yeah so, so i have so much to say the, go ahead but it's one it's it's these it's really what made me um you know, want to write this book was to just tell about that i needed to process what i was going through mm -hmm. and i am getting older and i do have some cognitive issues that worry me so part of the book is my exploration of of that you know i began to work with a neurologist and undergo a lot of testing and a lot of imaging of the brain and i'm still in the in the process of undergoing it 
because you know i think you can divide the world sometimes into the, the people who want to know and the people who don't want to know whatever the the thing is that they do or don't want to know you know and i'm probably a person who wants i think wanting to know is what makes us human wanting to know ourselves wanting to know love wanting to know god you know, it's part, it's part is it's very much a part of what makes us human. So I decided I want to know if they can tell me that I have the early symptoms of dementia, that something that's beyond the vagaries of a, of a, a normal aging brain. And so, in fact, I, you know, I'll, I'll go back to the city this weekend so that I can see my neurologist on Monday morning for some follow up. Mm-hmm. So the book, you know, it, and it, the book is it's a lot about the faith. You know, the faith that when I look back at, at the anxiety my mother's journey, you know, gave me, I realized how it it had it necessarily deepened my faith. Yeah. Then. We're gonna I talk about that in a minute for sure. Yeah. I have so much to say. Oh my gosh. Um, first of all, as we were talking about offline, when you are someone like me that has three of their four grandparents that suffered from this, there is certainly a selfless part of me that wants this disease cured and eradicated. There's also a very selfish part of me that wants this disease cured and eradicated. And I know you understand that because it runs in your family very prevalently, it sounds like as well. And um, we, you know, speaking of having an average of three to five caretakers per, per person, my mom and I moved in with my grandparents. So these are her parents, my, my maternal Um, grandparents, my maternal grandfather. So my mom's dad was the first to be diagnosed. And um, it got to the point where we did not want to put him in a nursing home. And so my mom and I moved in with my grandmother to who was, you know, by then in her late sixties, early seventies herself. Right. And um, to help her care for him. So this wasn't just something that I saw like at holidays or, you know, maybe once a month, this was something I saw every single day. And, um, you talked about the carafe. So my, the, our first inclination that my grandfather, something was going on was he was an electrical engineer and in 19 mm. Christmas of 1993, cause he was diagnosed in 1994. So Christmas of 1993, he got a, an answering machine. And I know you remember these, some, hopefully listeners, you all remember answering machines, but, um, that would have been, you do. <laughs> I don't have a landline. Yes, anymore. I do. I haven't had a landline I, I, in a long time. Up in the country here, um, for a long time, I couldn't get cell service, so mm. I got a landline. So, got it. And I still have it. Got but, it. Well, so you, so you understand. So that, so when he got the answer yes. machine, that would have been something that he would have gotten the gift for Christmas and would have spent the entire day setting it up until it was done. And, and it would have excited right. him greatly. Like that was, he, he loved stuff like that. Loves loved projects like that. So he got this for Christmas and he did not care at all. He not only didn't care, he, he, he I don't even think that he did anything with it ever. And that was strange. That was very strange. Uh-huh. And then from there, um, he was diagnosed in 1994, and it gradually, as you know, gradually infiltrated his brain until I would say the sharp decline in 1999, and it was just kind of off to the races from there. And it's just anybody that's seen it up close and personal, as you have, as I have, knows knows why we're passionate about it. Because if you've seen it, you never want anyone 
to experience that again. And I, I want to talk about your mom in just a second, but before, before I do, I want to share some things from the book that, that you taught me. So in the book, you call Alzheimer's a slow march to the grave. Again, those who know about this slow march really know, and we're all a part of the club, those who suffer from the disease and their caretakers. It's one that you'd never want to choose to be a part of. You write in the book, as you just said a moment ago, that cancer, heart disease, and other medical conditions kill more people, yet we as a society dread Alzheimer's more. And there are um, about, as you said, six six to seven million Americans who suffer from Alzheimer's. That number, unfortunately, is set to double in the coming decades. There are 12 million caretakers. That's roughly two for every victim. Alzheimer's will have a 355 billion, yes, that is billion with a B, economic impact by 2050 in the absence of a cure. But beyond all of the numbers, Alzheimer's becomes deeply personal when it affects someone that you love. And you write in the book that the word Alzheimer's has a power all its own. I agree with that. You write, I loved my mom, but I hated that word. It's as if the two could never coexist in my mind. So I want to give you the platform here to tell us a little bit more about your mom. What was she like? And tell us about her struggle with Alzheimer's, like when she was diagnosed how long she had the disease. So who is your mom? And tell us about her struggle with the disease. My mom was something else. I mean, she was one of these people that, that if you met her, you never forgot her. Mm -hmm. um, she was very, very bright. She was one of six kids, grew up in a very Irish Catholic home in Philadelphia. Um, and all the kids were smart. My mother, my, my grandmother on my, my maternal side was a school teacher. So my mother knew how to read and write by the time she got to first grade. It was just, you know, oh, wow. they learned, you know, she was smart. She skipped some grades. I mean, she was a college freshman when she was 16 years old. Wow. Um, and, you know, she went, you know, she was just a, you know, she wanted to be a mother and what was called in those days a homemaker but you know she went on and she was you know in the 1950s she was a quiz show champion you know i, I they still for all their lives they held all the stuff that they won on this quiz show because she was so sharp and so fast you know she did crossword puzzles in ink she's one of those people <laughs> and she always had a couple books uh, going you know she usually read a fiction and then uh, something in history or politics read two three newspapers a day you, you get the picture she was in she was a real overachiever with her brain and and a, a deeply spiritually committed woman um and that really led to some of the early signs that something was wrong with her you know she you know particularly after my father died um she would uh attend daily um mass morning mass at st owen's parish in, in birmingham michigan and she, um, one of many things she did to help, you know, to, to, to deepen her spiritual connection to the church community, she counted the um, the collection basket every morning after mass, you know, and that was a big help to the pastor because she would do it and she'd fill out a deposit slip and she'd take it to the bank. And she did that for a long time and it gave her great satisfaction. And, you know, a, a friend of hers, sort of a confidant, a, a nun named Sister Carolyn, got in touch with us at one point one day and said you know your mother's having problems with the deposit slip you know the 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 number on the slip isn't matching up with the the collection basket so we'll um and sister carlin said so i'll help her from now on but i want to do it quietly because i don't want her to feel she's a very very proud woman 
and mm-hmm. I don't want her to feel like she, you know, she's failing. And I know that would really upset her. And it would because he had just watched both her sisters die in memory care. Um, so so Sister Carolyn kind of stepped in so my mother can continue to be part of the church, even though she, her her capacities were eroding. And the same thing happened. She was the church librarian. And the same thing happened there. Sister Carolyn called us and said, look, now, you're, now your mother's having trouble reshelving the books. Like mm. she, the Dewey Decimal System had defeated her. And so we're going to start doing that for her. And she can still be the front desk and check books in and out and greet people and talk. But, you know, we're going to take this away from her. And we just want to do it in a way it doesn't humiliate her. Mm -hmm. And it would have because she was so proud of her active brain and her ability to help people. It was so and she was, you know, she she was involved in all sorts of charity events. and, And, you know, to see her life begin to close up you know, like an aperture of a camera that you close down was, you know, it was so difficult. And we were, you know, we were, we kids were pretty smart. We knew what was going on. I mean, we knew what was going on in the world. And, but when it came to my mom, we had a weird kind of denial. Like it's not really happening. This is a normal thing. And even then when we realized it was more than a normal thing, getting old, um, we thought, well, we can control it or we can put off the inevitable you know, move to a memory memory care unit, and um, and that was really tough. You know, doing things like taking the keys away from her, you know, so she couldn't drive because she got into a couple accidents. And being my mother, she then argued with the cops about about whose fault it was. <laughs> right. You know, but she, you know, she, but you know, she, but she would um, you know, she just it became dangerous. And in retrospect, I can't believe you know my my brother's a lawyer, his wife's a lawyer, my sister's a psychologist. And we we just couldn't bring ourselves to really fully accept what was happening to our family. And, um, it, it you know, it was at the very last minute that we finally did surrender her and give her to a memory care unit. It was wonderful. Run by the Catholic Church. It was brand new. She was they said she was the first class. Mm-hmm. Um, and she actually, you know, it, it was a relief for us to finally, you know, break down our denial and do what had to be done for her mm-hmm. benefit. Mm-hmm. Well, this is an enormous question. The better question would probably be, how did her illness not impact you? But how did her illness impact you? It was in the book and in my previous books, I've talked about um, my own struggles with addiction. And I had been sober for quite a while then uh, when my mother began to de- decline. And I, you know, I very secretly began drinking again and I didn't understand why, you know, in my mind, you know, I was a, I was an alcoholic. So drinking, you know, relapse is part of the disease and it, it took, you know, a, a, a really plain spoken counselor to, to say, you know, do you think that your mother's Alzheimer's has triggered your addiction again? And I, and I completely resisted it. I had total denial. No, don't talk to me about that. I'm an alcoholic and I had a relapse and you wouldn't, you know, if I had cancer and I had a, a, a you know, a, a, recur- a recurrence of cancer, you wouldn't be asking me this kind of question. So, and I, I got very upset. This was in a detox and that I was thrown into. And, um, but what, I really did sort of slowly begin to realize was, was, you know, 
my mother's Alzheimer's um, really triggered my own vulnerabilities and my own fears. And of, of losing my mother, you know, to see the to see her fade away like a like a ship disappearing into a fog bank, mm. ever so slowly. And every time I talked to her, every time I saw her, a little more of her was missing. You know, and I and it's it's like a it's like you 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 lapse into a, a kind of perpetual grief because they as a person and it's not even physically but emotionally spiritually they're they're dying bit by bit before you and they take a little bit of you with them yeah as they do and you know particularly in a mother-son relationship and we were very very close for a lot of reasons that i talk about in the book mm -hmm. i'm not sure we have time to go into here um but you know it I didn't realize how um, how much I would be affected. You know, they say addiction is the is a disease, is a family disease in a sense that it affects all the family members. Alzheimer's like is a little bit like that too. Totally, it really totally. it it subsumes, um, particularly I think children and spouses. It subsumes you. You know, even though you're not the one. You know, you're losing that person who was so much a part of your, li your life and you think you're losing that life um, with them or losing parts of that life with them. You really feel like as their memories and their cognition, their ability to recognize you, you know, begins to, to tatter. Um, you feel like you're, you're being lost because yeah. how it's so important that your mother, you know, recognize you and know you and love you. And you think that's, that that's all going away. Um, day by day we've got to do it year by year because it's a long disease now i found out some things in the book mm -hmm. uh, i don't want to talk about them yet that that were redemptive which which gave me hope i wanted to write a book you know about a journey of faith um but also a book that gave people hope and and let and reassurance and confidence and 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 i came out of the process knowing so much more about myself and my mother um, mm -hmm. than I maybe I even knew before this journey began. Um, yeah. It's amazing how how much I learned about about our relationship, about her and what was really at the core of her life. Mm -hmm. And really, I learned about myself in a way that I never thought I would. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. And yeah. listeners, if if you're listening to Edward speak, the, the way he writes is just as poetic and beautiful. And that is why this book is a is a must for anyone, but especially for unfortunately, what what did we just say? The twelve billion caretaker or million rather caretakers that right. that are in the US. I mean, because listeners, if if you have Alzheimer's in your family, you you get this and you will feel seen in this book. And, you know, obviously Edward, you're a man of deep faith. You couldn't really do what you do without that deep faith. The book itself is called a journey of faith. So I know the answer to this, is, but I want to hear you answer it. Was her struggle a test of your faith or did it strengthen it? Well, I'm, I'm going to tell you that I, I'm not a person of deep faith in the sense that I don't have doubts and that I don't doubt sure. my own faith. No, sure. it's a struggle. And I always think it, you know, our doubts make us stronger because they challenge um, 
not the nature of our faith, but the strength of it, like personally, not, you know, I, God's strength is eternal, but, but, you know, my own faith falters. You know, I think of, you know, Peter in the garden denying mm -hmm. Jesus. You know, we, we have times when we, we don't trust our faith. And that's what I learned in the journey of faith was to trust my faith, um, that it would be the thing that got me through it all, that, that made me, you know, be there for my mother, you know, because at times, particularly in the beginning stages of this disease, I was, I couldn't be there for her because I couldn't be there for myself. Mm. I was, you know, I was too deeply shaken by it, you know, but the miracle of this journey, you know, and why I wrote the book and why I think this is an uplifting book that is full of hope and light is that as my mother succumbed to the ravages of this disease, you know, a disease, of, well, what, be, what could be crueler than a disease that steals our memories? Right. You know, but this does so much, Alzheimer's does so much more because it, it obliterates cognition. The, really the ability to think is yeah. what is, is, is attacked. But when it was, when I saw that stripped away from my mother, you know, there were two things that were left her faith and her love. Yeah. And I realized those are the two things that Alzheimer's can't destroy. No disease can destroy those things because they're not solely of the body. Hmm. They are properties of the soul. And my mother's soul burned as brightly and as brilliantly at the end as it had all her life. Mm -hmm. And I realized that's where I could find strength is in, in, in the fact that you know, this disease could not destroy her love and her faith. And, you know, I there were little things that, that showed me that, like even after she basically stopped thinking, when people came to pray for her, her lips would suddenly start moving with them in prayer. Mm. You know, she that prayer was reaching her. She's still long into the process of the disease when she couldn't speak coherently if she heard a hymn, if they favored him. She yes. could sing it. I mean, yes, really, that is how my sing. grandfather was. I mean, he was he was diagnosed in 1984. He passed away in 2007. So even even at the bitter end of the disease, 13 years later, he did not know who I was. He did not know who his wife of you know 60 years was. But if you put on mm -hmm. "How Great Thou Art" or um, some music like Frank Sinatra from you know his youth, <laughs> he he could yeah. talk, man. I'll tell you what he could sing every Kate Smith. Oh my gosh, Kate Smith. He loved oh, Kate no. Smith. Um, <laughs> he. <laughs> He, I mean, every word, and this is a man who didn't know his own name, didn't know who anybody around him in his family was, but he could sing every single word of, of a hymn. That's right. That's wild how that's so. I know it was, it was so stunning to me that there was, you know, so many things that still touched my mother, but they were of a spiritual nature. They were of a, of the nature of love. Those two, you know, burning you know, pillars of our lives. Um, and it's really what we, the only thing we have in life really that's permanent is, is love. That's and, right. Is faith. Everything else is pretty much, you know, superfluous to the, to our, there are ultimate, ultimate life, life's journey. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my mother, she, she, it, it was amazing that, that there is so much of her left at the end. Um, even though, anyone coming in to see her would say this 
there's nothing left, but they're really, she was just at her essence. That's you right. Know, and That's I, right. I, rem I, rem I remember, you know, the last word she ever spoke to me and she had never, she hadn't spoken in a long time and she was days away from dying. And I, I really felt I needed to unburden myself to her, which is selfish. I thought, you know, here's a woman who's dying and I'm going to talk about me, but I wanted to tell her that, you know, I hadn't been an easy kid. I hadn't even been an easy adult mm. and I'd done things that I regretted. And I know that there were times when I, that I caused her a great deal of angst and worry and anxiety. And I wanted to just say, I was sorry to her and that I, that I loved her and that, and that I always knew no matter the dark places I went earlier in my life, you know, that I always knew for sure that she loved me. And, yeah. and the last word she said was love. That's all she said. She said the word wow. love and God, that I'm... told me yeah. <laughs> that, you know, there was reason to rejoice in this, mm. in that it affirmed through my mother, the sort of eternal power of love and faith, which are one and the same thing. And it, it's a, it's a, it's a duality that um, I think is what redeems us in life. Not from sin, not not from anything, you know, like that, but just redeems us, redeems our humanity. Let's put it that way, that those mm -hmm. two things, love and faith, is what redeems our humanity. And I knew at the end, no matter what the ravages of the disease looked like, that inside my mother still had that fundamental love and faith that had animated her whole life. And nothing could take that away from her. And then nothing could take that away from me. And mm. that's why I say this book is full of hope and light. And that's what I wanted it to be. That's what my mother would have wanted it to be because she was a relentless optimist. Mm. You know, she was someone who worried a lot, <laughs> who was often beset by anxieties, but on the other hand, always had a really optimistic, it's going to be okay attitude. And in the end, it was okay. Wow. 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 It's just, uh, I'm like, if I can get through this whole thing without crying, that will be a true miracle. We'll see what happens. But um, one of the most fascinating parts of the book was your decision to learn more about how Alzheimer's might affect you in the future. So I want to start here. What is the role? And I know you're not a scientist or a neurologist, but you know enough to know enough. And what is the role genetics plays in getting Alzheimer's yourself if a family member like your mother or my grandparents have it? Right. Well, you know, it's, it hasn't been, it, it's one of the, the mysteries, but, but it's being un, unraveled, even as we speak, as they find that there are more, and uh, there's just more and more research about, it. and you can understand why, as you and I've discussed, it's, it, you know, it's, a, it, it's going to affect an enormous number of families and the, it already does, and it will do, do more. So there's, so there's a great impetus to do good research about this. Um, there is a, a, a a distinctly uh, genetic form of the disease um, that it tends to create uh, early onset Alzheimer's, which mm -hmm. is an Alzheimer's form of dementia that can affect you in your 40s and 50s. It is essentially, you know, pathologically, it's the same disease or neurologically, it's the same disease, but it is inherited. It tends to strike younger and last longer because it's striking people who are, who are healthier to begin with. And, and so that's one piece of it. So that's a clearly genetic, but that's a very small percentage. Um, and we also know that there are a, a set of genes um, 
that if both parents have them and pass them on to a child, that that um, child is a, a, a significantly greater statistically, not an inevitability by any means, mm -hmm. but a significantly um, greater chance of, of developing Alzheimer's, more of the classical Alzheimer's. Um, but but they do know or they do suspect that there is certainly a genetic role in at least some cases of Alzheimer's. Others occur in families that have no history of it, or at least no recognizable history of it, because we, we don't go back that far in, in medical science. So you don't know what your great, 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 great grandparents might have suffered with. Mm -hmm. But that seems to be an Alzheimer's that um, that gene uh, seems to, um, or that genetic uh, influence on, on whether you get, or you become demented you know, is also influenced by so many other things like diet and other diseases and, you know, basic wellness and exercise. And there's all sorts of factors. And they know that, you know, things like, you know, like exercising regularly, maintaining a, a, a healthy weight, not having other morbidities that could, you know, weaken your resistance to, to Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia, like diabetes or obesity or high blood pressure, all those things seem to 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 coalesce to to determine to some extent, you know, whether or not um, you will you will suffer from dementia. And Alzheimer's, you know, it used to be out the the word the the word for Alzheimer's was was really only applied to early onset Alzheimer's for a long long time, um, and it was only I think in the nineties the American Medical Association actually allowed it or permitted it to be um, applied to a much broader spectrum of, of um, dementias uh, covering a lot of different age groups. And as you know, some, some people don't develop Alzheimer's until very late in life. Mm -hmm. And in, in the end, our minds tend, you know, like the rest of the organ systems in the body, you know, tend to deteriorate with time. Um, so that, that deterioration, you know, is, is there for everyone at some point. Um, but the research is is ongoing, and I mean, I I do I I spent a year reading books on Alzheimer's and neurology and trying to absorb as much as my brain could absorb. Mm -hmm. And you know, it, it is there's a, just a lot of work being done, and I I do believe that we will, if not arrive at a cure, then certainly at better treatments. You know, to to slow the progression of the disease. It's a you know not unlike cancer i mean cancer used to be a death sentence mm -hmm. you know and now after all these decades of of research and prayer and investment in, in finding a cure no one's really cured cancer yet but they certainly have increased um uh, our ability to to manage it and right. to give people meaningful years of life you know where before they would not have had a hope of any of that and, mm -hmm. I, and I think alzheimer's is on that same track mm -hmm. to be mm -hmm. a, a relatively treatable disease even if it is difficult to, to cure it um and i think there's things you can do you know i would urge this uh people who are um who are younger um and aren't thinking about this um that the choices you make in your lifestyle can very much influence your susceptibility to, to all sorts of forms of dementia and that includes just the basic things like taking care of yourself you know, getting sleep. Sleep is so important, mm. you know, in, in preventing this disease and also treating it, that treating the symptoms, 
particularly the early onset symptoms, the early symptoms, not the early onset, but early symptoms. And, you know, I, what you do in your 20s and 30s and 40s really influence how your brain responds to aging in your 50s, 60s and 70s. Totally. Um, and there's just there's a lot that you can do. And, you know, I know it's hard and I don't always do all the things I'm supposed to do. But um, I try and I think that's the best we can do. That's right. That's right. Awareness and education. Well, speaking of education, you write in the book that knowledge is armor, but then you grapple throughout the book with, do you really want to know if this is going to impact you someday or is ignorance kind of bliss? You write in the book, what was I doing? What did I want to know that only God really knew the future? Isn't that always what we humans desire to know most what happens next The future may exist in some unknowable dimension. We will never be privy to it. All we have is now in the immediacy of faith. So I'd like for you to tell listeners what you ended up deciding to do. Like, do you want to live in ignorance is bliss or do you want to find more and how you came to that decision? Well, I never believed, you know, I remember hearing that phrase when I was young, ignorance is bliss. And I thought that's crazy. Why? Ignorance can never be bliss, you know, it's because you're ignorant of, you, you can't be ignorant of reality. And mm-hmm. in my case, you know, it, it is, you know, it is, it's, it's about knowing whether or not some of the symptoms or what I believe to be symptoms that I'm suffering now are actually precursor symptoms of Alzheimer's itself. I don't know that I'm exploring it because I'm one of those people who wants to know. But one of the things I challenged myself in writing this book and found myself thinking about was, was, you know, do I have a right to know the future? You know, mm. um, because that's knowledge. You know, wanting to know the future is wanting to be God. You know, yeah. you want to have a power that only God has, you know, that, and, and, and that's, that, that itself is a demented thought. I mean, but so, but I, I had to get past that sense of, 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 um, a grandiosity that I was trying to, to and understand that it, you know it's important to me to think about if if I do develop Alzheimer's you know you know I, do I want to plan for that do I want you know do I the, it, you, you would plan for other things in life you plan for a lot of things why not plan for this who would my caretakers or caregivers be you know and what would my final wishes be in terms of you know treatment and so forth you know, for me, there are practical questions as well as as the bigger philosophical questions like what what does this knowledge gain me if I find it out? If I'm mm-hmm. told at some point, yes, you are in the very early stages of dementia and this will progress probably to Alzheimer's and you will pretty much take the same path that your mother did. And that's really frightening. But that that's frightening whether I know it to be a fact or something close to a fact or or I'm denying it and just trying not to think about it. It mm-hmm. doesn't change the fact that those things, two things are frightening. And the other thing that, you know, one thing that, you know, and this may say contra, this may seem, you know, contra, indi- a contradiction of, of, of my sort of basis thesis of wanting to know is, you know, one of the things that, that, that this taught me in the end was that, you know, we only live in the present, you know, right. you know we spend a lot of time regretting the past or romanticizing the past or idealizing it. We spend a lot of time projecting into the future and, and worrying about it or, or wishing things into existence in the future that we can't wish. But it did, Alzheimer's, my mother's Alzheimer's 
really drove home the need to be present in the now because yeah. that's where she was in the second mm -hmm. part of that disease her you know her perception was you know time you know one of the things that it's interesting because time is such a fluid um force in the universe and in alzheimer's patients time begins to sort of disaggregate you know and it's not just them losing memory you know time itself begins to expand and dissolve so that you know you go into the you go into their room in the morning and, and they tell you they just had this wonderful conversation with someone you know to have been dead for 20 years right you know and, and you know your human uh impulse quickly as a child or a, is to say no no that person's dead you didn't talk to that person stop it you know and that's natural you know but but i realized eventually that it really the, the natural thing to do is to pretend like you're there with them and say, well, what did you talk about? You know, how's he doing? You know, and, and because that's where they are and you have to meet them where they are, which is the present. You know, they have, they don't differentiate much between the past and the present and you have to be there with them. And if it means that you, you go along with these sometimes crazy sounding thoughts that an Alzheimer's patient might have, it is so comforting to them. You know, it's frightening that they, it causes anxiety when you tell them, no, you didn't do this. And no, you know, that memory's wrong. Or no, that never happened. It's all true. And it's all happening for that patient. And the best thing you can do in the place where you can love them the most and give that love is to be there with them in their presence. And their what is the present reality for them and not, you know, and not fight it because they're already trying to fight it. All you can be there is, is with them. And if they just talk to somebody who hasn't been around for 20 years, then fine. They had a great conversation. Tell me about it. Right. Know, I'm, I'm really interested. Right. And it, it taught me to live in the present in a way that I had never really tried to live in the present. Absolutely. Before. Yeah. I want to make mention also that the book gives so many tips that are very useful. I know that, again, because I've walked through this disease before. Um, tips include how to combat post-caregiver burnout, how a family can work together through this, what to do when you're looking for the right facility for your loved one. You talk about the early stages of the disease. And as you put it, it's a slowly lengthening shadow. You touch on where memories go when we lose them, a bit about how memory works. Obviously, this is a memoir, but it's also quite well researched as well. So I'm wondering what the most interesting piece of research or piece of information you found when writing the book okay two things that one is neurological and medical and the other is, is something i had just hadn't thought about because it didn't really affect our family as much and that's um you know when the caregiving is over and this is particularly true i think you know when a single person is doing most or all of the caregiving for the for the patient and usually that could very often be a spouse or a parent and you know I, you sometimes we don't think enough about what happens to that caregiver who's probably been doing it for at least a couple of years like their whole life is devoted you know to to caring for this deeply loved person for the last steps of their journey and there's a there's a void that happens in many of those caregivers uh because there's you know because it's a big part of their life just just died too, which is the caregiving that that burden of love 
that the caregivers carry, you know, they're often then completely bereft. It's more than just grief. It's a it's a great sense of finding your purpose because your purpose has been to love this person and care for this person through thick and thin and the good and the bad. Um, so I, it fascinated me that there isn't more done for that, but there are things you can check with the Alzheimer's Association. They have a lot of good recommendations for people who had been, you know, intense personal caregivers who then had to go on with their lives absent their, their caregiving passion that, that they had. And so that was very interesting to me. And, and some of the tips you can get, you know, you know, get in kind you tense, you know, and that's, you've probably lost touch with a lot of friends. You've lost trust with community. You may, you may have, you know, sort of let your, your faith slide. You know, you have to actively pursue those things again and get those things back into your life. Right. Because a lot of them have been eclipsed by the, the by the burden of, of caregiving, by the burden of mm -hmm. love. The other thing, the most interesting scientific thing, and I just read the other day that they're doing more research on this. This is um <laughs> it's a it's a it's a little morbid, but you know, they were um there was a, an older man and they were doing a neurological evaluation. Basically they, they were just they were measuring his brain waves and um, because he had, had been having seizures, he was up a He didn't have Alzheimer's. He didn't have dementia. But while uh, his brain was being um, was being studied electronically when they were they were you know trying to you know look at the brain activity and see if they could find the source of these seizures he was having. He died. You know he died while this machine was while this study was being made of his brain. And you know that doesn't happen. That's merely by chance. But um, what they noticed that the, there was a, at that, those last seconds of, of life, there was this burst from a part of the brain, the hippocampus, and some of the some, uh, some of the related structures where memories are stored. We know they're stored chemically. Our memories are, are have a chemical reality uh, within the neurons. And there was a burst of energy and activity from this part of the brain that governed memory, particularly deep and long-term memories, and that faded as the person expired. And that, that really was like the first solid evidence that you do, in fact, see your life flash before you wow. um, at the moment of death. And we've heard that with near-death experiences all mm -hmm. the time, that you're given sort of a review. And there appears to be a neurological um, explanation for that, a basis for it, because of what the brain does, you know, in the last, the literally the last seconds of life, it becomes this huge generator of memories. I mean, that you, you leave this world and go on to the next one on a wave of memory. And I, you know, I couldn't help thinking, you know, when we don't know the answers to some of this, but does that happen in an Alzheimer's patient? Is, the, do those memories still live somewhere in the mind or in some other metaphysical place that, that that a person is given access i mean i love to think that all of my mother's memories at the moment of of, of her passing all came back to her you know and and really that is a question for neurologists because you know we don't know if if the memories deteriorate as neurons deteriorate or if just the ability of us to access memories deteriorates means the connection between the neurons and if if it's if it's the latter that we just can't access those memories i think it's a miracle 
I think it's, you know, I think it's a miracle that at that at that last second all those memories would come back to us. Wow. And that we would take them with us to the next to the next level of, of existence. And yeah. it gives me that's why I'd say there's there's a lot to be hopeful for and and to know that no matter what you're forgetting now, you will be will be restored to you. Wow. 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 And wow. 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 That was so that was interesting. Yeah, I don't I you know what, Edward, I did not think that I could I knew this conversation was going to be great. I didn't think I could get more out of it than even the book, which was amazing, but I am. And it's just, you know, it's been a long time. I mean, my last grandparent passed away 11 years ago. So it's been a long time since we were in the thick of it, but you never, no pun intended, you never forget, you know, I mean, you just, it's, it's like, I just, again, like I, all, all of those feelings of that time and just watching because my grandfather, my mom's dad in particular was the central male figure in my life. And he was so strong and he was so smart and to watch those things fade and so slowly and then rapidly and then slowly again, it's just, you never forget what it's like to walk through this disease with someone and it's awful and I, I beg for a cure and, um, I've enjoyed my time today with you so much. My last question for you is one that I often ask authors on the show. And I certainly want to ask you when readers of the book, close the book at the end of it, what do you hope they will leave the experience able to say? I wanted to lift people up at the end of the book. Um, the way I was lifted up. Mm-hmm. There is a scene. I wasn't with my mother when she died, but there was. I was actually climbing a mountain in New Mexico, <laughs> and um, no, I'm sorry, in Arizona when 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 she died, and it was, you know, I was ultimately lifted up by her life and her death, and. I wanted to convey to people that no matter what worries we have about the future, whatever that future is, it may have nothing to do with Alzheimer's, but that worry about, I, I believe we are in God's hands or the, the hands of the universe and that we can feel that, not just know it, but feel that. And I wanted this book to make people feel that or help make them feel that the way my journey with my mother and my faith made me feel um by the end of that book which is hopeful and optimistic and strong Mm -hmm. um regardless of what awaits me and that that i was given you know i was given all the strength i need that i don't actually (laughs) have myself Mm -hmm. but um that that strength would be given to me and that comfort would be given to me uh, the loss of my mother Mm-hmm. And all of that has come true. Well, you write in the book, the future is a black box. The now is where faith intersects with our lives or where each day is another step on that journey of faith. The book is called A Journey of Faith, A Mother's Alzheimer's, A Son's Love, and His Search for Answers. It is out right now. Edward, you know, I'm in this club with you, unfortunately, and I thank you for this book. 
And I deeply mm -hmm. thank you for being here today. Thank you, Rachel. It's been a, a real pleasure to talk to you. And I think um, there are so many other people who will identify with the conversation. Absolutely. Thank you again. What a great way to close out this season. Thank you so much for being here, Edward. The book, again, is A Journey of Faith, A Mother's Alzheimer's, A Son's Love, and His Search for Answers, and it is out right now. Well, the turnaround time for season nine is a solid 48 hours. We have so much content to bring you. So for season nine, we're going to do things a little differently again. Instead of being all over the map and all over the place as season eight has been, we are going to do episodes every Monday and every Thursday. So expect that in your feed. The month of December will be mostly new releases with maybe a throwback pick or two thrown in, as will February, but for the month of January, and I am so excited about this, to kick off 2024 and what I pray is a better year for everyone, not the least of which is myself, we are doing a month-long wellness series that will include episodes on both physical wellness, so think diet and exercise, and mental wellness too. I am so proud of this series and I can't wait for you to hear those conversations. We'll kick off season nine on Monday with an episode about music of the 1990s. See you in a couple of days and thank you for a great season eight.